Today I'm continuing a series of sermons on worship. Over the past several weeks we've considered a number of things, especially how in the story of Jesus and his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus specifically taught us that the externals of our worship are not really the point. That it did not matter whether the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem or the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim, but that the real point is that God seeks those who would worship him in spirit and in truth, with our whole hearts and minds, in other words. We've also looked at how we need to make an effort, we need to focus our attention and our energies on God in acts of worship. We cannot be passive. We cannot sit back as though we're watching a sporting event and expect to find satisfaction in our worship. We must focus on God and on the great works that he has done. Especially we need to focus on remembrance and anticipation. Remembrance means looking backward to God's great acts, especially his acts of creation and redemption, but also anticipating, looking forward to the fulfillment of the promises God has made. And we also last week talked about the sacraments, baptism and especially Holy Communion, how they may be the very best way in which we can both look back at what God has done and look forward in anticipation with what he will do. The Holy Communion table is a remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for us, and it is an anticipation of his coming again. And so the sacraments are very important to us. Today I want to talk a little bit about the role of music in worship. Sermon is entitled, Into His Presence with Singing, or at least I will get there eventually. As I was working on the sermon, I realized that I need to address first some misunderstandings that I think people have. For one thing, today in the church, in many cases, worship has become synonymous with singing. Ministers and worship leaders will often say, okay, let us now enter into our time of worship, when what they really mean is, okay, now let's sing. Now, singing is an important part of worship, but it is not worship itself. It is only one of the ways to worship. Other aspects of Christian worship are and have always been, including prayer, praise, thanksgiving, confession, the reading of scripture, baptism, the Lord's table. But in many modern churches, singing has become almost a sacrament. It has become the focus of many people's idea of what worship is. So I want to talk about singing as one aspect of worship, but first I think I need to step back and talk a little bit more about what worship really is. If worship doesn't just mean singing, what does it mean? And, in fact, worship is surprisingly hard to define. Martin Luther, those Lutherans in congregation will appreciate this, I I see some nods, Martin Luther said of Christian worship, and I quote, that nothing else be done in it than that our dear Lord himself talk to us through his holy word, and that we in turn talk to him in prayer and songs of praise. In his large catechism, Luther went on to emphasize the duality, the two parts of revelation from God and our response when he said, and again I quote, in worship the people assemble to hear and discuss God's word and then praise God with song and prayer. One of the most important things about what Luther says here is he's talking about worship being revelation and response. That despite the fact there seems to be an inherent human motivation to worship, there's never been a culture that didn't have some idea of religion and some desire to worship. While that seems innate in us, Christian worship especially does not begin with us. Christian worship is a response to God's first act, his revelation to us. 
Our worship is a response to the divine call, to the mighty deeds of God, especially in his redemptive act in Jesus Christ. This is because Christian worship is at its heart a giving of thanks, acknowledging what God's embracing love has done for us, that his redemptive loving kindness has redeemed us, has healed us. And once we acknowledge that, that God made the first move, then we respond with praise and adoration, which is our worship. Worship, in other words, is not a human invention. It is instead a divine offering. God offers himself to us for a personal relationship, and we have the opportunity to respond. God offers his love, and that elicits our response in worship. This is critically important. Because worship is our response to God's initiative, the church cannot be Christian without worship. It is Worship is the most important function of the church. It is more important than preaching or teaching or discipleship or evangelism or anything else we do. I'm always flattered when people say that they come to church to hear me preach. But it also disappoints me terribly because it means they don't really understand why we're here. The preaching is not the most important part, even though it takes up the biggest section of time. The most important part of what we do is worship, is to relate to God, to respond to his invitation to be in relationship with him. And so worship must be the top priority of the church because our relationship with God is the whole point of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could be in relationship with God. And worship is the point at which when God speaks to us, we respond to him with praise and adoration. Without worship, we are not Christians. Without worship, we are not a Christian church. And yet, too often, I feel that we simply don't invest ourselves in worship, in recognizing God's presence here. Relationship with God is the key to being a church, to being a Christian. God took the initiative to restore the relationship with humanity after it had been broken on the human side. We betrayed God. We sinned against Him. We did not deserve His love. And yet He initiated by the gift of His Son a reconciliation so that we could come back into relationship with Him. We sinned and we could not heal ourselves. So God acted on our behalf to save us. And worship is our acknowledgement of that and of the relationship we now have available with Him. So the beginning of worship is not some human need, but it is by God's invitation. He gave His invitation first to the nation of Israel, His chosen people, and then He reiterated it to all who would receive in the person of Jesus Christ. That we might return to God, that we might be reconciled with Him, that we might be in relationship with Him, and we might so be healed. Thus, the human practice of worship is a response to what God has done first. God approaches us in invitation. We respond in faith. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to be in communion with God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 11.36, For from him... And speaking of God, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. From him means God initiates it. Through him means by the power of the Holy Spirit we are enabled to respond. And to him means we 
give our worship to God. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Our part of this two-directional worship involves doing certain things. Christian worship means we regularly perform certain acts that are acts both of obedience to God and also ways in which we receive spiritual blessings. Being a Christian means more than just accepting certain things as being true, and it means more than being a moral person, although Christianity should be both of those things. But in a central way, being a Christian means we do certain things. Things like prayer and praise, confession, thanksgiving, the reading of scripture, baptism, and communion. When these things are done in the context of faith and obedience, they become essential markers of the presence of God in our midst, of his call to us, and of our faithful response. We do things as part of the act of recognizing our relationship with God and his presence with us. And ultimately, it is the practice of these acts of worship that shape us in and through the story of Jesus. It's through worship that we focus on the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ, these historical events that form the basis for our lives as believers. Everything we are, our whole worldview, is based upon that true story of what Jesus has done for us. It is the focus on that that causes us to grow to be more like Jesus. But there is a danger as well in focusing on the practices of worship, the things that we do when we worship. Since whatever we do is invariably the work of imperfect people, we are not perfect. We sometimes have polluted motivations, whether we realize it or not. We can never claim that the worship practices by themselves are transformative. Just going through the motions does not grant that we are going to be in right relationship with God because those acts can be poorly or thoughtlessly performed. The Catholic Church even says that the uh, sacraments of the Catholic Church are only valid when they are taken with right intention. And we would agree with that. But when we do the acts of worship in faith and in obedience, then we invite the Holy Spirit to work. And it is then that we can be remade so that we might live our lives to the glory of God, to become more like Jesus, and to celebrate, not just for one hour on Sunday morning, but throughout our whole lives, to celebrate the presence of God and our relationship with Him. But thinking that just going through the motions of worship without faith and without obedience behind them, that's one of the potential dangers that we have to be aware of. But there are others. I think we can all admit that we tend to take for granted that how we worship whether that means Lakeside Presbyterian Church or Presbyterians or whatever tradition you come from, that the form and style of worship that is familiar to us, many times we tend to believe that that is normative, meaning that's the way it ought to be done and that any other approach to worship must somehow be wrong, that our way of doing it is the right way, without realizing that even within Protestantism, there have been many different styles and approaches to worship down through the last... 500 years. For example, I recently was criticized for not doing an altar call every week. I've had a couple people talk to me about that, but one person was especially critical. And part of the criticism was that I didn't make uh, the altar call, the invitation to come to Jesus, as the focal point of all of my sermons. 
The person that was unhappy with me quoted Matthew 28, where Jesus does say, go and make disciples. But I pointed out that in that same talk in Matthew 28, Jesus also said, and teach them to obey everything that I have taught you. So that my belief is the emphasis of sermons can't just be on conversions if we're also supposed to be obedient to everything else Jesus said, if we're also supposed to be teaching along the way. What I didn't get into with my friend is that that singular emphasis on altar calls and conversion is only one historical style of doing church. It's actually called revivalism, and it grew up in the United States. It's very American, and especially is very common in the South. But there are at least five other major approaches to how you do church that have developed in Protestantism. That's not to say that altar calls are wrong. I probably need to do them more often than I do, inviting people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. But that's not the only way of doing church. And I'm only giving this as an example that we tend to think that our way of doing it, what we've grown up with, what we have known, is really the only way. And that is a real danger. We tend to be limited and cut off from some things that might actually be great blessings for us. Another concern that's related to that, and to religion in general, worship in particular, is that our worship occurs in a particular cultural reality. In other words, Christians almost universally believe that their culture, the culture that they live in, in our case for most of us, North American culture, is the one that is most important to God. In some ways, it is good that we recognize that we live in a certain culture because that allows our worship to fit who we are. I spent a lot of time in Africa when I worked with World Vision, and the worship of our African brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord is very different. It reflects their very African culture. If you come into our, later on in the morning, uh, at noon, if you come into the worship of our, our Mexican, our Spanish language church, then you will get a very different kind of vibe from what you get here. Because they're younger than us, and they come from a very different culture. This is always the case, and that's fine. Understanding the culture and having your worship fit that culture is a good thing. But we also have to realize that there are some very negative and even destructive aspects of our culture that wants to, to influence our worship, and we must resist that. Things like North American commercialism, overt self-centered individualism, that it's about me, the ever-increasing power of the media and entertainment industries, that we're so addicted to being entertained, we come to church and want to be entertained, and the modern love of spirituality over against religion. I've talked before, people, I've heard it over and over and over again. Almost every time somebody hears I'm a minister, they will say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Well, worship happens in the context of religion. When someone says, I'm spiritual but not religious, I believe that means I want all the benefits, but I don't want to have to have any of the responsibilities. I don't want to have to do anything that's structured. I don't want to have to participate in any sort of organized thing. Give me all the goodies, but don't expect me to have any responsibilities. Related to this, many of us have come to believe that worship should satisfy our own personal needs, or the needs of our families, perhaps. In other words, for many of us, and this is very North American as well, worship is invariably personal, and if it does not satisfy my personal needs or, more often, my personal desires, then there must be something wrong with it and I will look somewhere else. We think that meeting my needs and my desires is what worship should be all about. 
But that may not necessarily be so. In the history of the church, most often, there was one church in a community, a parish church, and everyone attended it. And and community existed in those times in a way that we really don't experience it very often in our communities today. But our tendency to interpret faith and worship in personal and individualistic terms reflects some good aspects of our Reformation. The Reformation that Luther and Calvin and others led. That was the point at which people were first encouraged to be personally involved in their faith and in worship and not just follow the lead of priests who were ultimately responsible for taking care of all that. We need to be personally involved. But that individualism that comes in people feeling like worship has to meet my personal needs, much of that reflects the influence of the Enlightenment and the time when we began to say individuals are autonomous and self-creating, that they, you know, that I am the center of the universe. I think, therefore, I am. All reality is dependent upon me being the center of it. We obviously want to celebrate the Reformation emphasis of being personally involved in worship, but we need to reject the Enlightenment idea that everything is about me. It is not okay for us to bring the me attitude and the me generation into our worship because it is not about you and your preferences. It is not about me and my preferences. It is about God and it is about finding meaning in our relationship with God. That's what should drive us. And that, finally, brings us to the topic of music in worship. Singing has always, since the oldest of Old Testament times, been a critical part of worship. The book of Psalms, all of it, is a songbook for the ancient Hebrew people. And the Psalms have continued to be sung ever since. We have a number of Psalms in our songbook. They are the old words joined with new music. We don't exactly know what the music was that they sang in Old Testament times, so we've had to come up with new music. But for a hundred years after John Calvin, so well into the 17th century, only psalms were sung in the church. There were no other songs. There was a real concern that if they tried to write other songs and sing them in the church, they might be unbiblical or they might be too emotional. In fact, the very first book that was ever printed in the United States was the Bay psalm book. And the New Testament church as well. We're told music was very important to them in the early Christian church. There are many verses in support of this, but one of them is Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, in which the Apostle Paul writes this, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of truths in that. Giving thanks. G.K. Chesterton said thankfulness should be the constant attitude of Christians. And to do so in the name of Jesus. But not only has music always been important to Christian worship, it's also been the source of some of the greatest conflicts. Even long before the worship wars, as they called them, between traditional and contemporary music that happened in the... Uh, 1990s and early 2000s. We've gotten past a lot of that. There's still some tension. But as far back we know as the 18th century, the great English pastor and preacher Charles Spurgeon used to refer to his music department as the war department because they were always arguing over the music. Today, those disagreements continue, but as I say, perhaps with a little less vehemence than a couple of decades ago. 
I recently had a woman tell me that she and her husband would like to come to our church, but they couldn't because our music was just so boring. Another longtime member here said that if we ever started using drums in our service, I'm out of here. People still feel strongly about these things. They have strong feelings about music, and for that reason, here at Lakeside Presbyterian, we've always tried to be balanced, to use mostly traditional hymns, given the average age of our congregants and what most of you have had as your background, but we also try to include some newer music as well. In fact, the hymn book that we have, which is called Worship and Rejoice, is specifically designed to try to provide as good a balance between traditional and contemporary. That's the contemporary is the worship part, rejoice is the, is, uh, I'm sorry, the traditional part, rejoice is the contemporary part. So we chose that, ha- that hymn book in order to try to find as much balance as possible. It is important, music is important, but is it really right for people to make their decision about a church based upon the style of music? and whether that style fits their personal preferences, as many people do. That's probably one of the major factors people use in deciding whether they're going to come to a particular church. We have to ask, is there not a very real danger that when people make their decision about a church based upon the style of worship music, then they're actually perhaps saying that they do or do not find that church sufficiently entertaining? It doesn't meet my entertainment expectations. I don't enjoy the music in that way. When if the words are words that are praising to God, should we respond that way? Should the entertainment value of music be the criteria that we use to decide the merits of the worship? That is, the response of the people to the presence and call of God as reflected in all aspects of worship. When people have that idea that they will choose or not choose a church entirely based upon worship, it almost invariably means that they think of music as being worship without acknowledgement of the other aspects. In fact, I would insist that all worship practices, including the music, must be derived from deep meaning and not just personal preference. Worship should be determined by our theology, by our beliefs not by what we find most entertaining. Everything we do in corporate worship should be directed by what we believe about God and God's mighty act in Jesus Christ. And once we've established those as the parameters, our question then would not be what is right or wrong way to what is the right or wrong way to worship or what did I find most satisfying or entertaining about that worship, but instead we would begin to ask what elements and forms best represent the true meaning of worship. How can we be best led into an attitude of worship by more than just the songs? The activities that we call worship, prayer, praise, confession, thanksgiving, and singing, are among the highest pursuits that any human being can be capable of. They are the fundamental language of the Christian faith, and they involve participants wholly It calls upon us to use our bodies and our minds, our wills and our emotions. What we call worship is charged with the very presence of God, and it does not get more important than that. Therefore, people who come into this experience of worship cannot rightly remain passive or indifferent. Let me say that again. People who come into The experience of worship cannot rightfully remain passive or indifferent, not if they are 
followers of Jesus Christ and part of the true people of God. And I say that as a challenge to all of us. Do we enter into a time that is supposed to be dedicated in worship passively or indifferently? My desire, and I think it is God's desire, is that all of us here at Lakeside Presbyterian Church discover a new way of worshiping. A way that is deeper, is more involving, more expressive than any that we have had before. We must find ways for all of us to experience God's presence in a more meaningful way, to generate the kind of energy that we need to have to receive the presence of God and to praise and worship Him as He deserves. So as I said last week, starting in the month of June, which is just next week, we're going to be experimenting with some new elements and approaches to worship. That will include some new music, some new approaches to music. We're giving the choir the summer off on a hiatus, and so we will be using some projected music, some pre-recorded music, all sorts of different kinds of things. And I ask you right now, do not prejudge this. Whatever experience you have had in the past or whatever you think you're going to feel about it, wait and see, experience it. And if you allow him to, the Holy Spirit might very well use these new things to open up to you a more fulfilling sense of worship than you have known before. We are going to increase the number of times we offer communion. We will offer it every odd-numbered Sunday, one, three, and whenever there is one, five Sundays. So next week, and then the third week of the month, etc. And so I want to ask you to do something. I want you to pray for the weeks and months ahead in our church. I want you to pray for the new worship elements, that they might be fulfilling to all of us, that they might help draw all of us nearer to God, that we might all be energized to the presence of God and our worship of Him. So pray for our church, for the people who make this their spiritual home. Pray for new people who have not yet found our family here, but whom God might be wishing to draw to us. May this be something that is more fulfilling to those who are here and would call others to join us. And when you come to church next week, when we don't have the choir to help us out, come prepared to sing, and to sing with energy, to worship God, remembering it's not about old versus new styles, it's not about taste, it's not about what kind of music God likes more, it's not really about music at all. It is about the very purpose of gathered worship. It's about unity as the body of Christ, not personal choice. It's about theology and what we believe about God, not just our experience. It's about participation, not consumption and entertainment. It's about liturgy, not Jesus-y talk. It's about remembrance of what God has done in the past, anticipation of what he will do in the future, ancient and future, not just now, as we recognize God's great acts and worship him for them. Amen.